Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 77, Just Breathe. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Well, hello. I I feel so bad. And not just feeling bad because I've been feeling so bloody awful, but feeling bad because it's been so long since I've talked to you. I have missed you. I have missed podcasting. I've just, I've missed the whole thing, which I know sounds kind of crazy. It's like, wow, that's something you have to do after long days at work. But boy, I, I really have missed it. I've been listening to Frankenstein religiously, making notes and trying to figure out what to say and doing my research and nothing, nothing. I haven't been able to do anything about it. So here I am back again with my new theme, Breathe. <laughs> I'm going to play the song by um, Anna Nalek at some point uh, in this uh, podcast today because it is my new theme song and I have actually been listening to it and I like it actually quite a bit. So uh, since I haven't been able to get in touch with her and pay her for the right to listen to her song, I'm putting a link in the show notes to where you can purchase her music if you would like. And I hope I hope that does it all justice. Otherwise, I'll be re-recording this without the song. And there it is. Um, uh, on the topic of just breathing, I received today uh, an email from the 9-11 World Trade Center Health Registry telling me that um, children, children who were exposed to the dust cloud, children who were in or around 9-11 on that morning, are acquiring asthma at a uh, elevated rate. I'm not exactly surprised by this, but... Um, under the circumstances, it certainly makes me feel bad for the kids. Because if I'm having the trouble that I'm having, I can only imagine what children are going to be going through. I know the principal of my school has had a very, very difficult time with asthma, which she did not have before. Um, and I, I think a lot of us are, are starting to, to find that there are things that, that we're having um, health issues with that, that we didn't before. But I'm going to get a chest x-ray and we'll make sure that there's nothing uh, horrible and hideous growing, but I am on, let's see, one, two, three, four, five now, separate medications. And um, the sixth one, the one that I was on for a limited amount of time was prednisone. And it really did knock me for a loop. I was told that it could have an effect on my mood and you know that there were some other maybe kind of vague symptoms. Um, it didn't affect my mood. It affected my ability to think and, you know, like put words together and drive. I, I literally just kind of faded off and on throughout the day. And so at one point I was driving my sister home and I just kind of drifted out of one lane and into another. And she looked at me and said, what is going on with you? And that's when I realized that something, something really was up. It wasn't my imagination. And I haven't, Let's see, I didn't drive for almost a week and a half because I was I was truly scared to, to do it. At the same time, I could breathe. So, you know, this is the compromise that we make 
in my new asthma-filled life. And, um, and I think that's just the way it's going to be for a while. The rest of the medications that I'm on now seem to be holding. I'm only having maybe one or two really bad hacking fits a day. And, um, <laughs> and that's pretty good. It makes my chest hurt, makes my stomach hurt. But um, what are you going to do about it, you know? At least I'm still alive and I'm still breathing. <sighs> and you can hear the song Breathe in the background right now. I am putting the call out to my overseas listeners to find out if any of you are in Germany. Email me at mamaonits at gmail.com. That's M-A-M-A-O-K-N-I-T-S, all one word, at gmail.com. And I'll let you in on why I'm looking for someone in Germany. I really, really like that chorus. And it's one of the things that I was literally saying over and over to myself in my head as I was having these horrible attacks and finding myself incapable of actually breathing. So it's a very calming song that way, and I, I needed calming. In the middle of all of that, because I was, like I said, kind of vague and incapable of putting things together, I decided to do something that was kind of mindless, but also useful. And I'm teaching myself a new keyboard for the computer. It's called the Dvorak keyboard. And yes, he's related to the Dvorak. In, I think in the 30s, he came up with a better typewriter keyboard, one that wasn't designed to slow you down, one that actually is designed to speed you up. And for those of us who have carpal tunnel or any kind of repetitive motion problems with our hands and wrists from typing, this is something you might want to look into. Any PC and any Mac can change its keyboard configuration. You would have to manually move the keys if you wanted to, but you can, as far as the computer's concerned, manipulate which keys you are pressing. So it doesn't change what you see on your keyboard, it changes what the computer hears. Um, the Dvorak site that I linked to in the last post that was apologizing for not being able to breathe has a, a page that you can print out that actually has a hand-drawn keyboard on it. And I just printed that out and cut out the letters and used double-sided tape to stick them to my Macintosh keyboard. And it's worked brilliantly. And I'm learning a new keyboard. And I have to say, it's not that hard to learn, but my wrists are sure thanking me quite a bit. So that was some good news. I was very happy about that. I, uh, I also found some videos of Abby on a little crafty talk. Um, Abby Frankmont from SOAR, she was the scholarship winner this year. She has some how to spin videos on YouTube and I'm going to link to one of them. Um, Abby is a wonderful person. She has a great blog and she's a really lovely teacher. She's very calm. But the thing that's interesting is if you watch the video, whether you're a spinner or not, look at her hands and watch, just watch how she manipulates fiber. You can so tell that this is someone who grew up doing this. It's like watching someone who really knows how to sign in sign language. They're it's like hand ballet. You just watch them and think, oh, God, that's so beautiful. And it's the same with Abby. It's just lovely to watch her and to watch how her hands move. So that was that was something that I, I saw that I thought was kind of nice. I also have had the opportunity to see an old, old friend of mine from UCLA, someone who I spent every day of my life with for 
four years, back uh, 20 years ago at UCLA. His name is Scott Brick, and he's actually an audiobook recorder. This is what he does. He professionally records audiobooks. He has recorded 400 audiobooks and counting. So there's a good chance that you have heard my friend Scott read books in your ears. Next time you get an audiobook, check and see if it says Scott Brick and has a picture of a very handsome, blondish, bespectacled young man on the back of the uh, the CD case because that's my boy. And he and his producer are, I guess they, they tour around from time to time and they go and talk to librarians and occasionally talk to the general public about what they do and how they do it. And so I got to see them do their kind of song and dance. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful to see Scott, but it was also wonderful to hear how much time and attention goes into pronouncing the words correctly and making sure that you don't hear pages turn and making sure that Scott's voice doesn't change during the course of a two-week-long reading session. Because, of course, if he's reading eight hours a day, we all know what we sound like after we've been reading or talking for that long. It's, it's quite difficult to maintain that kind of consistency, and Scott has a routine and a formula for how to do it, and obviously it works. He's won the equivalent of an Oscar in his field, and his producer, who is also a lovely man, He's actually won a Grammy for his work at Books on Tape. So it was, it was really fun to meet them and to, to find out that my memories of Scott actually do match the reality of Scott as a grown-up because he is the nicest guy. And not a nice guy like a nice guy but, like the guy you don't want to date, you know, that you kind of go, oh, he's a nice guy but. Scott's not like that. He's just a really nice guy. Really smart, really funny, really talented. So I, I hope you have the opportunity to listen to him at some point and get back to me and let me know what you think. And I, I can I can probably find a way to forward your emails to him and let him know what you thought too. On the movie scene, which is the, the other side of the entertainment division, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Sweeney Todd is coming out in movie form, directed by Tim Burton, which is good because Tim Burton gets dark and Tim Burton also gets dark and twisted very well, starring Johnny Depp, who also gets dark and twisted, and Helena Bonham Carter, who spent years trying to prove that she got dark and twisted. And also, by the by, was in the really bad version of Frankenstein with Kenneth Branagh and Robert De Niro. However, I don't know if you've heard this story. My husband read it somewhere and told me that uh, Tim Burton was pitching the whole idea to... Um, Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the music, and I think just the music, I think James the Pine wrote the book for Sweeney Todd, but now I can't remember. Um, He pitched the idea to Sondheim, and Sondheim said, great, that sounds great, who do you want for Sweeney? And Tim Burton said, well, I want Johnny Depp. And Sondheim said, great. And when he said that, he didn't actually know if Johnny Depp could sing. He just knew that Johnny Depp was right. And I, I can't help but agree. I'm I'm really hopeful. And my husband and I have noticed that they've been splitting the advertisements into the musical version, like, hey, the movie is a musical, and the, hey, it's just a movie, pay no attention to the song that you hear in the background briefly with Johnny Depp singing. And I <clears throat> I think there are going to be quite a few people who are surprised, especially younger people, who are surprised to find out that Sweeney Todd is in fact a musical, and, and quite a, you know, horrifying, shocking musical, but a musical nonetheless. And uh, if you've never if you've never really paid attention to Sondheim, 
please do. Please actually, more importantly, please listen to the music before you go see the movie for two reasons. One, <clears throat> the story goes by really quickly and it's kind of hard to follow if you if you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And listening to the music will help you with that some. The second reason is, like the music in Into the Woods and, well, pretty much actually everything Sondheim has done, the music and lyrics go by really quickly. And Sondheim is a genius with rhyming. Like, I think of him as the precursor to Howard Ashman, who wrote um, Little Mermaid and, and Beauty and the Beast and Half of Aladdin. Um, his ability to rhyme and to create internal rhyme was extraordinary. And I think Sondheim was kind of the, the forerunner of all of that. And um, his his rhymes go by fast and furious, and you have to kind of keep up. Um, otherwise, you don't get a lot of the really wry and dry humor. So, if you have a chance, listen to the soundtrack of Sweeney Todd before going to see the movie, and then, oh, you know, I'll check back with you because I'm going to be recording every week again, and uh, I'm just hoping, I'm hoping that the movie is as good as I want it to be. I know Helena Bonham Carter worked really hard not to put herself back into costume period dramas, but at least she doesn't look like the ingenue from Howard's End in this one. She looks really, really awful, and I, I hope she had fun doing it. It look I can't imagine not having fun doing it. It's Sweeney Todd, for goodness sake. So, man, I can already hear my voice starting to go, and I haven't even talked for 15 minutes. <sighs> but I'm breathing, so that's good. I um, I also I'm I'm ending the near the end of my semester with my my little freshman at my freshman comp thing, and one of my kids is doing for his final project. Uh, a paper, a context-building paper on the movie Zeitgeist. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie. It's an online movie. It was never, never, and it never will be released to the general public. It's, a, as far as I can tell, it's a really lousy job of movie making. It breaks a lot of rules that I learned at film school, uh, but it, it also breaks some other rules in that evidently it, it has borrowed its footage directly from at least four other films without crediting them. So I, I don't know how long Zeitgeist is going to stay on the web, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to find out if any of you have watched it or seen it or if you've heard anything about it. Because the little piece that he had me watch was so filled with logical fallacies. And you know that I'm big on logical fallacies. It was, um, it was actually painful to watch. And I I don't know if the rest of the movie is like that, or if it was just that I was watching this small section on 9-11, but it was, um, it was very, very frustrating for me to watch the 9-11 stuff in this film, because what they're trying to say is that 9-11 was an inside job, and that the Bush administration actually set off bombs to knock down the buildings, and they, they used all of this jump cut footage of eyewitnesses like me who said, and then there was this explosion, and then we heard this explosion, and then this explosion went off, and then this thing exploded. And they keep using that as proof that people are hiding the truth, which is that there were bombs in the basement that were going off simultaneously with the planes hitting. And um, I, I'm shocked that they would take that seriously because of course we who were there had no other way to describe these noises except explosion uh, in fact I 
when I was on Dateline, I described the sound of both planes going in, and I saw both of them go in. I saw both planes. Um, I described them as the sound you hear in World War II movies when missiles come in. That kind of... And then the explosion. See, I used the word again. And I think it's just because human beings are people who work with analogy. And the only way that we can find an analogous description, something that other people would understand, is to use language that other people are familiar with. I mean, truly, I'd never heard anything like this before. It was an explosion, but it's not one that you've heard. It's one that I hope never to hear again. And the sound of the buildings coming down, it wasn't really an explosion. It was an explosion with kind of crackling noises because you could hear the glass and the girders popping as they went down. And they were claiming that the the buildings could never have gone down uh, unless there had been um, charges set off. And then they showed, and this was the part that really ticked me off, and then I'm going to shut up about Zeitgeist. They, they claimed that demolition experts say that the only way you can bring a building down like that is to actually cut on a diagonal, like at a 45 degree angle, cut the steel girders so that the building slides down exactly where you want it to slide down, which of course the World Trade Centers did. I mean, it was a feat of civil engineering how they were built and it was a feat of civil engineering that they came down in one place and didn't take out all of Wall Street. However, they showed pictures of the girders in the pit during the cleanup and they showed one of them that was sliced exactly the way that you see the things sliced in a little video clip that they show of a demolition expert explaining how the the columns have to be cut for a regular demolition and they use this as proof that the girders in the World Trade Center were in fact sliced. I need to tell you if you look at the picture you will see in the background that the pit is really quite cleaned up at that point. That's because guys with blowtorches had been going through and cutting all the girders to get them to come apart so they could take the really twisted wreckage out and sift through to try and find the rest of the people or what was left of the people. And and it wasn't it wasn't that way before. I mean, I watched the cleanup out my window. These guys, these poor guys who are all so sick now, did such an enormous, heroic act of getting that place cleaned up in less than a year. And somebody's coming along and and crediting their hard work to an act of insider terrorism. It just, it just upset me. And now someone's calling. You know, I've got to get us back on the do not call list because since we moved here, we've been starting to get those um, late night uh, sales calls again. And I, I can't remember how to do it, but I'm going to, gosh darn it, get back on the no call list. So on the crafty side of things, I have been knitting my children little people. I knitted my older son a little man because that's what he wanted. And I knitted my younger son a little monster because that's what he wanted. And the monster has tentacles and claws and fangs and and the kids love that. I have finished my socks, which are the merino silk blend that my friend Debbie Brunner 
died and I'm about to start spinning to make socks for everybody else in the family because these things are so blasted comfortable. If you have a chance, go to Debbie Brenner's website and buy some of her merino silk roving in whatever colorway you want. She's kind of like the socks that rock people in that she does um she does uh gemstone colors. So mine were the labradite labradite I can't remember how to say it, but it's that one greens and blues and purples gorgeous 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 um so i finished those i am starting to work on my sister and her soon-to-be fiancés see he's the german that's where this whole connection is um i'm working on matching chenille scarves for them she doesn't listen to the podcast so i don't have to worry about this but i'm weaving those and i'm very happy with how that has come out i think i bought the yarn from yarn barn of kansas i think it comes as a kit and uh, i'm very very happy with that I've never done chenille before and I was a little worried about warping it but it really holds up much better than I thought it was going to and let's see what other what other things have I been working on I had to hand spin all of the the yarn for the boys little monsters and little men and so I did that with a spindle and it's gotten me back into my spindle spinning so I think I'm going to be doing some of the sock yarn on spindle which I'm very excited about because I really have enjoyed getting back to the spindle it's been nice and um, going back to the Guayabara shirt, my husband's Cuban shirt that I started working on forever ago, I finally just bit the bullet. I never heard back from the Knit One magazine um, about corrections to the, the pattern because there were, there were some mistakes, but more than anything, it was just that the pattern doesn't actually match the picture. There were some things that they left out. And since I never heard back from them, I finally just bit the bullet and I figured it out myself and I've charted everything and now I'm now I'm working on it, and uh, it, it's coming along quite nicely, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. So that's pretty much everything I'm working on. Oh, and I'm wearing socks from my Hogwarts Sock Swap Part Deux. Um, she knitted me some lovely Ravenclaw socks with a, a really nice little diamond pattern that's in with um, yarn overs, and um, she did a beautiful job. They're a little big, but I think it's, um, I think if I wash them, in something hot I will shrink them up a little bit but not too much so that's all my crafty talk oh no it's not I've been sketching again I've been sketching and painting I have a little watercolor set so I've been I've been working on that since I couldn't really do much else while I was vague I've been drawing more pictures of the boys and some scenery sketches and I'm slowly starting to learn i have been to at the advice of one of our listeners i've been working with the drawing on the right side of your brain um, workbook that i have and it's it's coming along quite nicely and of course i've been wearing my hot men of craftlet shirt out in public and i get um so far just strange looks and a couple of questions but um but the big one is the, the people who do comment are the people who see the front where it says and i have to thank my ravelry group for this eye candy for your ears. And I just love that. And so do other people. And that's what gets them asking. So thank you to everyone once again for your support and your your wonderful, wonderful emails. And um, and especially, and most especially to Dawn, who sent me a care package that was not to be believed. She sent me Yogi Tea, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. But the Yogi Tea has been spectacular. I I think I know a story in Tucson that will carry it. Um, 
I'd been using the traditional medicinals teas, which I like quite a bit, throat coat and breathe easy and gypsy cold care. But I have to say there is something butt kicking about the yogi tea that has, um, it takes it all to a higher level is what it does. And I'm most, most appreciative to Dawn. It has been, um, revelatory actually. And my husband keeps saying, "Mm, that smells good. What is that? So even he's involved now. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And now I think it's time that we bloody well turn our attention to Frankenstein. So when last we left our intrepid explorer, Walton had just gotten Victor to the point where Victor, it looked like, was about to tell his story. Now, this being a romantic novel, the background story on Victor is going to be romantic. And I don't mean, again, hallmark romantic, but romantic in that kind of windswept vista and, you know, tormented childhood. It's, again, it verges on Gothic. It's not all the way there yet. But Mary Shelley is certainly the precursor to what we think of as Gothic literature. And this book is is the one that did it. Um, the the guy who is reading this doesn't know how to pronounce the word indefatigable, and I am so, so sorry for that, and I considered re-recording the whole chapter, but he does a pretty good job with everything else, so pardon his lousy pronunciation, and I apologize for it, but, um, but I'm going to break into the chapter as necessary just to point out a few little romantic thingies and, um, and keep you on track. So this is the beginning of Victor's story. Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley. Chapter 1 I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years counselors and syndics, and my father had filled several public situations with honor and reputation. He was respected by all who knew him for his integrity and indefatigable attention to public business. He passed his younger days perpetually occupied by the affairs of his country. A variety of circumstances had prevented his marrying early, nor was it until the decline of life that he became a husband and the father of a family. As the circumstances of his marriage illustrate his character, I cannot refrain from relating them. One of his most intimate friends was a merchant who, from a flourishing state, fell through numerous mischances into poverty. This man, whose name was Beaufort, was of a proud and unbending disposition, and could not bear to live in poverty and oblivion in the same country where he had formerly been distinguished for his rank and magnificence. Having paid his debts, therefore, in the most honorable manner, he retreated with his daughter to the town of Lucerne, where he lived unknown and in wretchedness. My father loved Beaufort with the truest friendship, and was deeply grieved by his retreat in these unfortunate circumstances. He bitterly deplored the false pride which led his friend to a conduct so little worthy of the affection that united them. He lost no time in endeavoring to seek him out, with the hope of persuading him to begin the world again through his credit and assistance. Beaufort had taken effectual measures to conceal himself, and it was ten months before my father discovered his abode. Overjoyed at this discovery, he hastened to the house which was situated in a mean street near the Reus. But when he entered, misery and despair alone welcomed him. Beaufort had saved but a very small sum of money from the wreck of his fortunes, but it was sufficient to provide him with sustenance for some months, and in the meantime he hoped to procure some respectable employment in a merchant's house. 
The interval was, consequently, spent in inaction. His grief only became more deep and rankling when he had leisure for reflection, and at length it took so fast hold of his mind that at the end of three months he lay on a bed of sickness incapable of any exertion. His daughter attended him with the greatest tenderness, but she saw with despair that their little fund was rapidly decreasing, and that there was no other prospect of support. But Carolyn Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mold, and her courage rose to support her in her adversity. She procured plain work, she plaited straw, and by various means contrived to earn a pittance scarcely sufficient to support life. Several months passed in this manner. Her father grew worse, her time was more entirely occupied in attending him, her means of subsistence decreased, and in the tenth month her father died in her arms, leaving her an orphan and a beggar. This last blow overcame her, and she knelt by Beaufort's coffin, weeping bitterly, when my father entered the chamber. He came like a protecting spirit to the poor girl who committed herself to his care, and after the interment of his friend he conducted her to Geneva and placed her under the protection of a relation. Two years after this event, Carolyn became his wife. Okay, this next bit gets kind of interesting. Um, remember that Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was married to... Um, uh, a great thinker of the age. Both both of them were actually quite well known in in uh, intellectual circles for being real powerhouses. And um, <clears throat> and and then also you have to remember. I'm trying to do this delicately. That Mary was 16, I think, when she ran off with Percy. So there's a, a distinct difference in the age between Mary and her husband. And I have to double check, but I think there was a distance in age between her mother and her father as well. Um, Mary is doing an interesting thing here because in some ways she is transposing elements of her childhood onto a male character, which creates some really interesting psychological issues because Mary's female. And of course, her, her relationship with her mother who died in childbirth is going to be a little bit fraught. Um, to have Victor have issues with his mother puts it in a whole different light. And so you're going to be hearing some things in this section that are interesting and that will come up again later. There was a considerable difference between the ages of my parents, but this circumstance seemed to unite them only closer in bonds of devoted affection. There was a sense of justice in my father's upright mind, which rendered it unnecessary that he should approve highly to love strongly. Perhaps during former years he had suffered from the late discovered unworthiness of one beloved and so was disposed to set a greater value on tried worth. There was a show of gratitude and worship in his attachment to my mother, differing wholly from the doting fondness of age, for it was inspired by reverence for her virtues and a desire to be the means of, in some degree, recompensing her for the sorrows she had endured, but which gave inexpressible grace to his behavior to her. Everything was made to yield to her wishes and her convenience. He strove to shelter her, as a fair exotic is sheltered by the gardener, from every rougher wind, and to surround her with all that could tend to excite pleasurable emotion in her soft and benevolent mind. Her health, and even the tranquility of her hitherto constant spirit, had been shaken by what she had gone through. 
During the two years that had elapsed previous to their marriage, my father had gradually relinquished all his public functions, and immediately after their union they sought the pleasant climate of Italy, and the change of scene and interest attendant on a tour through that land of wonders as a restorative for her weakened frame. From Italy they visited Germany and France. I, their eldest child, was born at Naples, and as an infant accompanied them in their rambles. I remained for several years their only child. Much as they were attached to each other, they seemed to draw inexhaustible stores of affection from a very mine of love to bestow them upon me. My mother's tender caresses and my father's smile of benevolent pleasure while regarding me are my first recollections. I was their plaything and their idol, and something better, their child. So here again, <clears throat> this is something that Mary never experienced. She did not have any contact with her mother. I think her mom died a week, maybe 11 days after she was born. And her father, um, oh God, uh, Henry Godwin, was, um, I don't think he was a bad father. I think he, he was an intellectual and, you know, not necessarily the most doting parent around. She certainly grew up around a lot of really smart people. But but here she is describing this loving childhood full of physical contact that you just have to think probably was not her own, which makes it all the more impressive that she was so young when she wrote this. The innocent and helpless creature bestowed upon them by heaven, whom to bring up to good, and whose future lot it was in their hands to direct to happiness or misery, according as they fulfilled their duties toward me. Okay, that part bears repeating, and I'm going to actually play that again for you, because you need to hear this. It is foreshadowing, and it is very important to understand the importance that Mary puts upon taking responsibility for your own creations. The innocent and helpless creature bestowed upon them by heaven, whom to bring up to good, and whose future lot it was in their hands to direct to happiness or misery, according as they fulfilled their duties toward me. With this deep consciousness of what they owed towards the being to which they had given life, added to the active spirit of tenderness that animated both, it may be imagined that while during every hour of my infant life I received a lesson of patience, of charity, and of self-control, and was so guided by a silken cord that all seemed but one train of enjoyment to me. For a long time I was their only care. My mother had much desired to have a daughter, but I continued their single offspring. When I was about five years old, while making an excursion beyond the frontiers of Italy, they had passed a week on the shores of the Lake of Como. Their benevolent disposition often made them enter the cottages of the poor. This, to my mother, was more than a duty, it was a necessity, a passion, remembering what she had suffered and how she had been relieved, for her to act in her turn the guardian angel to the afflicted. During one of their walks, a poor cot in the foldings of a veil attracted their notice as being singularly disconsolate, while the number of half-clothed children gathered about it spoke of penury of its worst shape. One day, when my father had gone by himself to Milan, my mother, accompanied by me, visited this abode. She found a peasant and his wife, hard-working, bent down by care and labor, distributing a scanty meal to five hungry babes. Among these there was one which attracted my mother far above all the rest. She appeared of a different stock. The four others were dark-eyed, hardy little vagrants. This child was thin and very fair. Her hair was the brightest living gold, and despite the poverty of her clothing, seemed to set a crown of distinction on her head. 
Her brow was clear and ample, her blue eyes cloudless, and her lips in the molding of her face so expressive of sensibility and sweetness that none could behold her without looking on her as of a distinct species, a being heaven-sent, and bearing a celestial stamp in all her features. The peasant woman, perceiving that my mother fixed eyes of wonder and admiration on this lovely girl, eagerly communicated her history. She was not her child, but the daughter of a Milanese noblewoman. Her mother was a German and had died on giving her birth. The infant had been placed with these good people to nurse. They were better off then. They had not been long married, and their eldest child was but just born. The father of their charge was one of those Italians nursed in the memory of the antique glory of Italy, one among the Schiavi Agnor Frementi, who exerted himself to obtain the liberty of his country. He became the victim of its weakness. Whether he had died or still lingered in the dungeons of Austria was not known. His property was confiscated, his child became an orphan and a beggar. She continued with her foster parents and bloomed in their rude abode, fairer than a garden rose among dark-leaved brambles. When my father returned from Milan, he found playing with me in the hall of our villa a child fairer than the pictured cherub, a creature who seemed to shed radiance from all her looks, and whose form and motions were lighter than the chamois of the hills. The apparition was soon explained. With his permission, my mother prevailed on her rustic guardians to yield their charge to her. They were fond of the sweet orphan. Her presence had seemed a blessing to them, but it would be unfair to her to keep her in poverty and want when Providence offered her such powerful protection. They consulted their village priest, and the result was that Elizabeth Lavenza became the inmate of my parents' house, my more than sister, the beautiful and adored companion of all my occupations and my pleasures. Everyone loved Elizabeth. The passionate and almost reverential attachment with which all regarded her became, while I shared it, my pride and my delight. On the evening previous to her being brought to my home, my mother said playfully, I have a present for my victor, tomorrow he shall have it. And when, on the morrow, she presented Elizabeth to me as her promised gift, I, with childish seriousness, interpreted her words literally, and looked upon Elizabeth as mine, mine to protect, love, and cherish. All praises I bestowed on her I received as made to a possession of my own. We called each other familiarly by the name of cousin. No word, no expression could body forth the kind of relation in which she stood to me my more than sister, since till death she was to be mine only. End of chapter one. Okay, so the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, the description of Elizabeth in the book is way different from Elizabeth in Young Frankenstein. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but Madeline Kahn played Elizabeth, and she is spectacular. And in fact, I'm going to do my best to play some audio every once in a while from that movie, because I... I actually really feel that Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder in writing Young Frankenstein did more service to getting the the real story of the monster out. Because I, I think the old 1930s Boris Karloff movies are, you know, they're great monster mo movies, but they're, they're not this book. Um, and, and certainly Brooks and, and Wilder were copying the look and the feel of those old movies, but... I really think that their take on the monster is pretty dead on. And in fact, if you've watched that movie lately, you'll find that there are many scenes that they lifted from the book that they put their own twist on um, to make it funny. And then sometimes they actually didn't have to do much at all to make it 
funny or different because um, it's pretty close to the book. Anyway, on to chapter two. And we're going to talk at more length about the um, the title and subtitle. It's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. And um, when I finally get a chance to interview my Frankenstein scholar, this is one of the things that we'll be discussing is why why Mary chose that that particular moniker for for the the title. The reader that we're about to listen to, you actually heard quite a bit on Tale of Two Cities. Her name is Kara Schallenberg, and she's recorded quite a bit for LibriVox. Chapter 2 We were brought up together. There was not quite a year of difference in our ages. I need not say that we were strangers to any species of disunion or dispute. Harmony was the soul of our companionship, and the diversity and contrast that subsisted in our characters drew us nearer together. Elizabeth was of a calmer and more concentrated disposition, but with all my ardour I was capable of a more intense application, and was more deeply smitten with the thirst for knowledge. She busied herself with following the aerial creations of the poets, and in the majestic and wondrous scenes which surrounded our Swiss home the sublime shapes of the mountains, the changes of the seasons, tempest and calm, the silence of winter, and the life and turbulence of our alpine summers, she found ample scope for admiration and delight. So, according to Victor, Elizabeth is the classic romantic. She loves nature, she loves the the kind of grand vista of uh, natural phenomenon. She likes kind of the, the wild edge of those phenomenon. And in fact, you'll hear more about that shortly. But it's, it's good because you get Victor, who's kind of the science edge of the romantic thing, in that he's interested in the supernatural. And that you have Elizabeth, who's kind of the, the natural supernatural one. Victor's the one who strays because he falls too much under the sway of science. And again, the romantics were in reaction to the Enlightenment and all things logical and scientific. So you'll, you'll hear more of those parallels coming up. While my companion contemplated with a serious and satisfied spirit the magnificent appearances of things, I delighted in investigating their causes. The world was to me a secret which I desired to divine. Curiosity, earnest research to learn the hidden laws of nature, gladness akin to rapture as they were unfolded to me, are among the earliest sensations I can remember. On the birth of a second son, my junior by seven years, my parents gave up entirely their wandering life and fixed themselves in their native country. We possessed a house in Geneva, and a campaign on Belrive, the eastern shore of the lake, at the distance of rather more than a league from the city. We resided principally in the latter, and the lives of my parents were passed in considerable seclusion. It was my temper to avoid a crowd, and to attach myself fervently to a few. I was indifferent, therefore, to my schoolfellows in general, but I united myself in the bonds of the closest friendship to one among them. Henry Clerval was the son of a merchant of Geneva. He was a boy of singular talent and fancy. He loved enterprise, hardship, and even danger for its own sake. 
he was deeply read in books of chivalry and romance. He composed heroic songs, and began to write many a tale of enchantment and knightly adventure. He tried to make us act plays, and to enter into masquerades, in which the characters were drawn from the heroes of Roncesvalles, of the round table of King Arthur, and the chivalrous train who shed their blood to redeem the holy sepulchre from the hands of the infidels. No human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. My parents were possessed by the very spirit of kindness and indulgence. We felt that they were not the tyrants to rule our lot according to their caprice, but the agents and creators of all the many delights which we enjoyed. When I mingled with other families, I distinctly discerned how peculiarly fortunate my lot was, and gratitude assisted the development of filial love. My temper was sometimes violent, and my passions vehement, but by some law in my temperature they were turned not towards childish pursuits, but to an eager desire to learn, and not to learn all things indiscriminately. I confess that neither the structure of languages, nor the code of governments, nor the politics of various states possessed attractions for me. It was the secrets of heaven and earth that I desired to learn, and whether it was the outward substance of things, or the inner spirit of nature, and the mysterious soul of man that occupied me, still my inquiries were directed to the metaphysical, or in its highest sense, the physical secrets of the world. Meanwhile Clerval occupied himself, so to speak, with the moral relations of things. The busy stage of life, the virtues of heroes, and the actions of men were his theme, and his hope and his dream was to become one among those whose names are recorded in story as the gallant and adventurous benefactors of our species. The saintly soul of Elizabeth shone like a shrine-dedicated lamp in our peaceful home. Her sympathy was ours. Her smile, her soft voice, the sweet glance of her celestial eyes, were ever there to bless and animate us. She was the living spirit of love to soften and attract. I might have become sullen in my study, rough through the ardour of my nature, but that she was there to subdue me to a semblance of her own gentleness. And Clerval! Could aught ill entrench on the noble spirit of Clerval? Yet he might not have been so perfectly humane, so thoughtful in his generosity, so full of kindness and tenderness amidst his passion for adventurous exploit, had she not unfolded to him the real loveliness of beneficence, and made the doing good the end and aim of his soaring ambition. I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood, before misfortune had tainted my mind, and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. Besides, in drawing the picture of my early days, I also record those events which led, by insensible steps, to my after-tale of misery, for when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion which ever afterwards ruled my destiny, I find it arise, like a mountain river, 
from ignoble and almost forgotten sources, but swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration, to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was thirteen years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. I opened it with apathy. The theory which he attempts to demonstrate, and the wonderful facts which he relates, soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and bounding with joy I communicated my discovery to my father. My father looked carelessly at the title-page of my book, and said, "'Ah! Cornelius Agrippa! My dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash.' If, instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical. Under such circumstances I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside, and have contented my imagination, warmed as it was, by returning with greater ardour to my former studies. I think it's worth noting here that the speech that Victor just gave about how if his father had only dot dot dot, um, I have always felt about Victor that he's an excuse maker. And that this is the beginning of that, that, you know, oh, if someone had only warned me, oh, if only someone had only pulled me aside, oh, if only this had happened. And yet his, um, his actions at various points towards this book seem to me to point to the fact that had anyone actually tried to do that, he wouldn't have listened anyway. Um, it, it is an interesting fact because, of course, it's a first-person narrative, so you don't know who you can trust. But that's just something that, that has stuck with me. So listen for it and see if I'm right. It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin. But the cursory glance my father had taken of my volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. When I returned home my first care was to procure the whole works of this author, and afterwards of Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to few besides myself. I have described myself as always having been imbued with a fervent longing to penetrate the secrets of nature. In spite of the intense labor and wonderful discoveries of modern philosophers, I always came from my studies discontented and unsatisfied. Sir Isaac Newton is said to have avowed that he felt like a child picking up shells beside the great and unexplored ocean of truth. 
those of his successors in each branch of natural philosophy with whom I was acquainted, appeared even to my boy's apprehensions as tyros engaged in the same pursuit. The untaught peasant beheld the elements around him, and was acquainted with their practical uses. The most learned philosopher knew little more. He had partially unveiled the face of nature, but her immortal lineaments were still a wonder and a mystery. He might dissect, anatomize, and give names, but, not to speak of a final cause, causes in their secondary and tertiary grades were utterly unknown to him. I had gazed upon the fortifications and impediments that seemed to keep human beings from entering the citadel of nature, and rashly and ignorantly I had repined. But here were books, and here were men who had penetrated deeper and knew more. I took their word for all that they averred, and I became their disciple. It may appear strange that such should arise in the eighteenth century, but while I followed the routine of education in the schools of Geneva, I was, to a great degree, self-taught with regard to my favourite studies. My father was not scientific, and I was left to struggle with a child's blindness, added to a student's thirst for knowledge. Under the guidance of my new preceptors I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life, but the latter soon obtained my undivided attention. Okay, just a personal note on lame American stuff. You just heard her mention the Philosopher's Stone. I don't know if you remember, but the original title of the first Harry Potter book is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, not the Sorcerer's Stone as it was released in the United States. That's because other educated countries know that the Philosopher's Stone was an actual thing. You're, you're hearing a lot of alchemy, being discussed by Victor, and the Philosopher's Stone was a, a part of that, like the elixir of life, you know, this idea that you could find a way to live forever, if only... Dot, dot, dot. Um, so here it is, proof positive that the Philosopher's Stone is a thing, and we had to change it to the Sorcerer's Stone to sell the book, because somehow American children just wouldn't have bought the book otherwise. Stuff like that drives me nuts. Okay, back to the story. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame, and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favourite authors, the fulfilment of which I most eagerly sought, and if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. And thus for a time I was occupied by exploded systems, mingling, like an unadept, a thousand contradictory theories, and floundering desperately in a very slough of multifarious knowledge, guided by an ardent imagination and childish reasoning, till an accident again changed the current of my ideas. When I was about fifteen years old, we had retired to our house near Belrive, when we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. 
it advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I remained, while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak, which stood about twenty yards from our house, and so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited it the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner. It was not splintered by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. Before this I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. On this occasion a man of great research in natural philosophy was with us, and excited by this catastrophe he entered on the explanation of a theory which he had formed on the subject of electricity and galvanism, which was at once new and astonishing to me. All that he said threw greatly into the shade Cornelius Agrippa, Albertus Magnus, and Paracelsus, the lords of my imagination, but by some fatality the overthrow of these men disinclined me to pursue my accustomed studies. It seemed to me as if nothing would or could ever be known. All that had so long engaged my attention suddenly grew despicable. By one of those caprices of the mind which we are perhaps most subject to in early youth, I at once gave up my former occupations, set down natural history and all its progeny as a deformed and abortive creation, and entertained the greatest disdain for a would-be science which could never even step within the threshold of real knowledge. In this mood of mind I betook myself to the mathematics and the branches of study appertaining to that science as being built upon secure foundations, and so worthy of my consideration. Thus, strangely, are our souls constructed, and by such slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity or ruin. When I look back, it seems to me as if this almost miraculous change of inclination and will was the immediate suggestion of the guardian angel of my life, the last effort made by the spirit of preservation to avert the storm that was even then hanging in the stars, and ready to envelop me. Her victory was announced by an unusual tranquillity and gladness of soul, which followed the relinquishing of my ancient and latterly tormenting studies. It was thus that I was to be taught to associate evil with their prosecution, happiness with their disregard. It was a strong effort of the spirit of good, but it was ineffectual. Destiny was too potent, and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. End of chapter 2 Alrighty, so the stage is set for Victor and Elizabeth and Clerval to play out some diabolical future together. Um, I hope, I hope that Victor's kind of, um, 
I don't want to be too hard on him right now, but kind of his petulance, um, certainly his mercurial nature about how easily he, he changes from being all into studying Agrippa and then kind of tossing it out the window one day because of a chance occurrence and replacing it with mathematics. That this kind of, it's not really all or nothing, but certainly these kind of total changeovers of his mind, um, they're setting him up for what will come next. I would play uh, chapters three and four for you. Um, they're recorded together next, but th- it would be a little bit too long, and I don't want this to be undownloadable. Um, but but this does give you a very important beginning of understanding and seeing who Victor Frankenstein is, that he had a, a remarkably calm and trouble-free childhood. Uh, we probably would call him spoiled if he were alive today. He certainly had access to anything he ever needed. Um, Clerval comes from a upper middle class family. His father is working, um, I think, in uh, as a merchant. Clerval doesn't want to do this. He wants to be like Victor. Victor has all the money in the world and has the ability to sit around and read useless alchemy. Um, it, it It's definitely setting him up f- for having a very difficult time making adult decisions. Um, you know how, I think I've told the story before of uh, a party my dad threw one time, and they have a, a balcony, they have a, a ground floor, which is kind of below the ground, and then the top floor, which is where you enter. And so the top floor has a balcony, the floor below, kind of the basement slash ground floor, you walk out to a pool. My dad had a party at one point, and there was a small child, a three, he's four years old, um, who tore the place up, literally. I mean, some of their furniture is still stained. They've had to flip cushions. Something got ripped. One of their cushions got ripped. And the mother just stood there blithely doing nothing. And my dad was getting more and more irked because, of course, he raised his children right. And it ended with uh, the child climbing the railing over the pool deck. He wouldn't have fallen into the pool. He would have fallen onto the concrete. And my dad raced over, threw open a different set of doors than the one that was open, and grabbed the child and said, don't do that. No, don't do that. What are you thinking, you moron? And the mother looked at him, shocked, grabbed her son, and said... I want to raise my son so he'll never have to hear the word no. And my dad said, well, then I guess you're going to raise a monster, aren't you? And the woman got very huffy and left. And it was it was a, something that happened before, obviously, before I had children. But um, but even back then, it, it seemed kind of obvious to me that children need limits. They need boundaries. They need to know that the world is safe. And this is where Bruno Bettelheim starts talking about in the uses of enchantment. He starts talking about kind of the, the need for those dark stories that you don't go into the woods alone. Bad things are there. And that makes children feel all the more safe being home with their parents. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and of course, it's very interesting reading 
the Jasper Ford books, like The Fourth Bear, which is the one I'm on right now, and reading all about the, the Goldilocks and, and the Three Bears storyline, because it's it's not entirely a, a different take on the whole thing. If you haven't ever checked out Betelheim, Betelheim and Joseph Campbell I read at the same time, uh, The Uses of Enchantment and the Powers of Myth. And um, they, they complement each other very nicely, and they are fascinating, I think, in how they... Um, approach story and the importance of story and our understanding of story in our lives and how important they are and um, and how important they are in children's lives how how very very much we need to have kind of a mythic arc to life and um, and this book definitely draws on those needs we are we are watching Victor set out on his journey but even more importantly soon very soon we will be watching the monster set out on his journey and and he is his is the road less taken i think i'm going to end there for tonight uh, i i have had to drink a whole lot of tea to keep this up and i am going to go rest my voice and rest my body and uh and then i'll i'll do another podcast next week i hope you are all well i sure hope you're better than i've been And I hope that I find you well again next week as we head into the frightfully fraught and very, very busy holiday season. Don't forget, if you want to donate during the month of November, you will be placed into the drawing for the third of the Gen Minis Craft Lit Charms. We have one for November and one left for December donations. And um, I think all of the, the goodies have been sent out to last month's donation winners. Um, so go ahead and send in your contributions and we'll put you in the drawing for this month or December. Have a great week, you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlet. Go to knittingoutloud.com. Listen while you knit. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, At least you can turn one on.